Welcome to Your Adventure Podcast, a motivational podcast without the screaming. A hosted, unedited conversation with guests from all walks of life, sharing their own personal journey, showing that everyone has different outlooks on life, choice of career, and that success looks different for everyone. Get ready to be inspired and be enlightened of how we all have similar journeys and thoughts. Anything is possible. This is Your Adventure Podcast, and this is Dustin Emery. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Your Adventure Podcast, and this is your host, as always, Dustin Emery, and today I have my returning guest from episode six, uh, Alice Emery. How are we doing today? Hi, I am doing good. Thank you. Thank good you to be for, back, right? Yes, it is. Thank you for um, inviting me back again. I like it. Thank you. Now, today is a little bit different because, you know, returning guests, uh, obviously we can't do the same thing that we did in the first episode. And actually, you're my second guest to return. I've only had one so far. Okay. And that was different. It was uh, it was a new ball game, I guess you could say. And that's the one I did with Garrett <clears throat> where he returned. So it was a little bit different. But a new exciting adventure, I would say. Now, I know today you have some things that you want to talk about, and uh, you wrote it down, and right. we're going to go, what, section by section? Yeah, we'll just go and stop where we feel comfortable, I guess. You know, um, I have notes so that I can stay on track with what I want to share. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, the stuff, I, I read a little bit of, a little bit of it on the paper before. Well, actually, I read it yesterday, and some of it looks emotional. Is is that stuff you want to share with people? Yeah, it is, because I I hope that there is a message for someone. I don't know who. Hmm. Maybe it's just for me. I don't know. Um, And it's not really anything that I've ever shared. And Not that it's bad or good. It's just I've never had a, I guess you would say, a platform or an opportunity. And I don't know where it'll go or where it'll lead. But if anything, maybe it'll help me and Hmm. maybe just one more person. Okay. Well, we'll start with the first section, uh, mm-hmm. wherever you want to begin, and we'll talk okay. about it. What do you want to share first? Well, where are we at? Um, I'm going to take you guys back to when I was 16 years old, mm-hmm. and um, the date was October 10, 1976. And I'm just going to really briefly just touch on this, but it was a day that I almost died, very severely. And it was because my girlfriend and I, my my best friend that we were in high school and she had a Volkswagen and her and I were really into a heavy party scene and drinking and driving was like nothing. That was back then. Yeah, that was so easy to do. And unfortunately, this night we drank and we drove way too much and we were coming down from a party place that was up on a hill. And as we drove down the road, I have no idea what happened. And she doesn't either. We very well could have just become unconscious as she was driving. But the car that we were in was a Volkswagen Baja. And it was a a Volkswagen that her dad had stripped down and put fiberglass parts on it. So it made it look like... Cooler? Yeah, way cooler. He he painted it for her. And it was something that you might see out in the the desert. But it was strictly built for the street highway. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, when we went off the embankment... We went down a hillside, uh, probably a little more than 500 feet, and I'm guessing we probably nosedived and we rolled and rolled and rolled. 
when the car got down to the bottom of the ravine, it was in pieces because it was almost all fiberglass except for the doors, the hood, everything else was fiberglass. And it was pitch black, dark. And I remember I couldn't see anything. And I remember standing up barely. And I knew I was on an incline of a hill because I couldn't stand straight. And I remember looking up and I remember seeing at a distance like little tiny lights. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, uh, I have no idea where I'm at. And I knew, I remembered I was with my friend. So I started calling out her name. And way off in a distance, I could hear a muffle saying, I'm over here, I'm over here. And so I just started walking towards the voice. And she told me, she said, I'm under the car. I was like, oh my God. And I, I didn't know what I could do. Mm-hmm. And she said, I can't breathe. You have to get it off me. And she said, there's a branch that's that's leaning on top of me. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, it was a good-sized branch, too. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking like a little twig. This thing must have been at least probably, probably six, seven inches round. So it was a good, hefty branch. Big piece of tree. Yes, a big piece of tree. <clears throat> and I knelt down, and I couldn't see anything, but I could feel the branch, and... So I pulled on it and I pulled on it and I just started crying and told her, I can't do it. And she said, oh my God, you've got to help me. I can't breathe. Mm. And something just came over me and I literally picked up that branch and the car came up and she crawled out from underneath it. Oh, wow. So now, you know, she's out of the car, from under the car. And so all we could do is we just knew we had to get to the top. We started recollecting things and we, and she said, we've got to get up to the road at the top. And so we just put our arms around each other and we just like dragged ourselves together back up to the top of the road. Mm. We got to the top of the road and, um, we looked to the North and we could see headlights coming and we were standing on the side of the road and the car just passed us. And I don't know how they didn't see us, but they didn't. They just passed us. Mm-hmm. So we're still standing there kind of holding on to each other. And another car came and they stopped. And my girlfriend just fell onto the ground. And it was a carload of the people that we had been partying with. Oh, wow. And they said that we had left, well, we had left several hours ago. Hmm. And so they were coming down the hill and they saw us and they realized, oh my God, that's Alice and her Mm. friends. So they stopped. And at that point we realized how injured we were. And there was two cars because one, but one car came behind the other and both cars were our party friends. So one of the cars, uh, one of the guys picked up, picked up my friend and put her in the car in their car. And the other person got me to their car. And, uh, the one car headed down the hill to my friend's house and she lived with her dad and he took, she took him home, took her home. Mm-hmm. And then the other car load took me to my house. And I remember my friend literally carrying me like just a limp doll, just carrying me in his arms to the front door. And I remember my dad answered the door and, and my friend just said, I didn't do anything. I just found her and her friend on the side of the road. They crashed. Mm-hmm. And my dad says, oh, my God, okay, all right. So he got my dad got me, 
and my friends left and was granny home yeah and my mother was home and um they both put me in the car and i remember laying in the back seat and i was just kind of like in and out of consciousness but then we were still both very very drunk yeah and um i probably saved your life probably it did and so we were in the hospital for about three weeks Mm. i was so swollen that when people that I knew, because my mom had worked at the hospital for forever, ever since I was a little kid. And so I grew up knowing everybody in the hospital, anywhere from the mechan- uh, maintenance to housekeepers to the pharmacist, to people that worked in the front office, even doctors I knew. And I remember people that I knew would come into the hospital room because they'd heard that I was there. And they didn't realize that that was me sitting in the bed. And they'd come in and they'd go, oh, I'm sorry. I think I'm in the wrong room. Oh, wow. And I would recognize them and I'd say, oh, Mary, it's me, Shorty. And they'd turn around and go, oh, my God. Mm. I mean, they didn't recognize me. I was so bang- battered up. Mm. So anyway. What were um, your injuries? You remember? I had nothing broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I had severe head injuries. Uh, I had lots of stitches in my head. My um, upper lip was all like torn, so they had to do plastic surgery on it. And I had battery acid burns on my hands wow. and on my on my elbows. And then this one elbow, I still have a scar there today. And for years, I could get glass out of it. They had to stitch up my arm. <clears throat> and uh, that was pretty much it. But I had no broken bones, but just a lot of contusions, which is all the muscles just severe blunts. Yeah, your body just got stressed pretty yeah, much to... severe blunt injuries. And mm-hmm. my girlfriend, she had internal bleeding, but they were able to... Stop it. Yeah. And she didn't have to have surgery, but um, she was all banged up too. Mm. Oh, gosh. Our parents were so mad at us. I would imagine. Oh, my God. But everybody survived through that. And that was one of the most craziest things in my life. But you see, I was out of control. Mm-hmm. We were just out of control. Um, so miraculously, we went on and I turned, I graduated in 1976 when I was 17 years old. Um, and then I turned 18 that October, got a job. And then um, I kept going on. And my girlfriend kind of, she kind of went her own way just naturally, not for any particular reason. And she got married and she had a baby and she was like 19 Hmm. and uh, I just kept going on and I got other friends and we were still crazy and partying and just acting wild and out at white water at that time it was always flowing with water (laughs) Mm -hmm. so we were always out there in the middle of the night in the desert just sitting around laughing and drinking and I always had a four-wheel drive so uh, I was the party wagon I'd load up people in my truck and we'd go four-wheeling all over the sand out there in, in white water and um, many a times my friends were out there and I can't tell you how many times they, me in that particular, I didn't do it that instance, but that they had rolled their vehicles. <laughs> uh, one night, one guy, he had his Suburban and he tried to go up one hill and he rolled it after we had all gone home. And then the next day someone called me and said, hey, have you seen so-and-so? And I was like, no, oh, I no. thought they came home last night when we came home. And they were like, nope, he's not home. So we all drove out there, and yep, there was. We found the Suburban upside down, and they were still in it. Oh, wow. They were just knocked out? They were just knocked out. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, we were all just out of control. Mm. Uh, what 
One didn't think of, the other one did. <laughs> and there was about 10 of us. Well, that's what a group of friends do, really. Yeah. Especially at that age. Yeah. There was about 10 of us, and we were just playing crazy. So I know my mom <clears throat> was praying for me. And about that time, she had found Christ in her life, too, when I was probably about 19. Mm -hmm. And um, I know she had to have been praying for me for something to, to change in my life. And um, when I was finally, uh, when I was 22, after a whole bunch of other things that I did between the time I was 19 to 22, I rode my own cars by myself with other friends, and I had just gotten to the point where I was drinking a lot. Um, beer no longer was something that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. uh, we changed to hard liquor. Mm. And um, I could drink a bottle of, a quart of tequila all by myself with no problem. Hey, straight. Yeah. And all my friends were doing <clears throat> that too. And then we started, once in a while we'd play around and we'd go to um, uh, flavored brandy. Mm. Blackberry brandy, I remember that. We didn't drink wine. Blackberry, that sounds good. It was really good. It tasted it like sounds good. Oh. It went down easy. But yes, when I when I finally came to an end, uh, I was drinking hard liquor. Mm -hmm. And I know that if God hadn't changed my life, I would have been a full-blown alcoholic and probably dead by 30. And I wouldn't have had anything in my life that I have today. I know that. Now, I know this might be a little touchy, but do you think any of that had to do was... I'm sorry. Do you think any of that had to do with Papa Leo because he was an alcoholic as you were a kid growing up? Very possibly. I mean, I can't blame him because I made my own choices. Yeah. But I saw the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's in my DNA. I don't know. But your, your environment affects you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very possible. Yeah. Because yeah. it was a lifestyle that I understood that I lived mm -hmm. under. Yeah. You know, but I still made those choices myself. Mm -hmm. but it's possible. So in the spring of when I was 22, which would have been like 1980, um, my mom had asked me several times if I would go to this particular retreat. Mm. And um, I knew she was a part of it, her and her friends. and um, And I kept thinking, you know, Dang. And she kept, she kept saying, well, it's you go Thursday night and you're done Sunday. Hmm. And I kept thinking, well, that's that's my prime time, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah, um, the weekend. Yeah, that's the weekend. That's a lot to give up. And uh, she just kept asking. Every so often she'd ask about it. And so finally I said, all right, I'll go. And I thought, get rid of her. Get off of my back and I'll just go on and do my thing. So I remember I went, <clears throat> and it was at the Catholic Church. And I remember, and it was an all-woman's conference, some um, retreat, and I remember I checked in on Thursday night. I had to take up a sleeping bag, and I had to, you know, take your change of clothes and toiletries, and, uh, you know, I was just way too cool for all of this stuff. And I was very, I was kind of hard. Mm. My heart was kind of hard. I can actually say that. And um, I smoked a lot. I drank a lot. I cussed a lot. I, and I was very arrogant and I was very prideful. I even had around my license plate on my car that said, damn, I'm good. <laughs> that was what I had around That's my license funny. plate. Yep. And I went to that retreat and the first night, okay, yeah, 
So they put us in classrooms and they turned them into like dormitories mm -hmm. and you just spread out your sleeping bag, your pillow, whatever, and you sleep here. And then, you know, like 10 feet away, there's somebody else there. Mm -hmm. Could have been an old woman, a young woman, my age. Well, yeah, they were there all different ages. And, uh, granny worked the retreat, which means that she helped put it on and did functions. And the, when we checked in there, they took our watches from us. We didn't have cell phones in those days. So they took any watches from you mm -hmm. and there was no clocks inside. Hmm. And in the classrooms, there was, you know, normally there's windows in a classroom. Well, they had papered all of the windows. Oh, wow. So you couldn't see if it was daytime or nighttime. Hey, so like a casino. Yeah, like a casino. And um, so there was nothing for you to think about outside in the world because you didn't know what was going on because you couldn't tell was it daytime or nighttime. Hmm. And so um, that night... <clears throat> They kind of like introduced everybody and they said, okay, we're not going to do much to you tonight. We want you just to relax and go to bed early tonight because tomorrow we have a very early morning. Okay. So we all go to bed and at 5 a.m. you hear the dun, 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 dun. you hear all this Mexican music and these guitars playing and maracas and tambourines and you hear all this joyful, joyful singing. And some of it's in English and then they go to another song and it's in Spanish, which I didn't understand Spanish, but it was just beautiful. But I wouldn't admit that. But now I think about it, it was beautiful and I could feel something. And these little groups would come into each each uh, classroom where people were sleeping and you're still sleeping in your sleeping bag and they come in and they flick on the lights and they're like da 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 and they're dancing and they're singing and they're going all around you and everything and everybody's sitting up in their sleeping bag like you know <clears throat> in those days we would have said you know uh, WTF <laughs> mm. you know what's going on and we're all looking at each other and they're like ah come on everybody get up get up and so then they have a stand up and, we're, and everyone was singing and clapping and dancing but not me of course you know, and I'm just standing there going, oh, God. Hmm. So anyway, um, so that's how the, re the retreat went every single, every single day. But while you were there, you all, I all of a sudden began to feel a beautiful presence. And I couldn't describe it. Hmm. I didn't know what it was. I had never felt that love before. And although I know my mom and dad loved me, they never said it. Hmm. They never hugged you. They never held your hand and they never said, I love you. And neither did my grandparents. And so feeling that love was unusual mm. and it was from people that I didn't even know. <clears throat> and just to kind of go back real quickly, mm. I remember one time when I was 15 years old, I remember for about a week thinking about who am I? What is my life? I can think of anything of value that I had and about who I was. Where am I going? I have no idea. And I'm thinking, why am I even alive? Why do I want to stay alive? Mm. Why don't I just die? And I thought, nobody loves me. No one's ever said, I love you. My parents don't tell me that. Why do I want to live? And I sat and I would think about it. And then one time during that course of time, days, something came to my mind. Mm. And my mom had a, a cousin named Isabel. And she was a very good lady. And I knew her because she'd worked with my mom. And actually she was my dad's second cousin. Mm. And she was a beautiful lady inside. 
and her <clears throat> husband was a very good man too. And as time went by, they actually even had a, a son that became a priest. But I remember her the whole time that I was growing up when I would see her at the hospital, when I would go visit my mom at work, and if Isabel was there, when I would leave on, and she would see me, she'd say, I love you, mija. And she'd say, bye, I'll see you again. Mm -hmm. And every time I saw her, she would tell me, I love you. And she was the only person that I could think of in my life at that time that ever said, I love you. And she was the one that gave me value at that time of my life when I was like, why am I here? Mm. And God answered that question by reminding me that even if I didn't know him and know that he loved me, that this woman loved me. And that gave me value. That allowed me to say, I'm worth something. And I can go on because someone does love me. Mm. And I know my mom and dad love me, but they just couldn't demonstrate it. In their own way. It. Right. They couldn't demonstrate it. So now here I am, fast forward. I'm at this retreat. And I'm feeling this beautiful love. And my mom was very loving to me, but I rejected it. Mm. And I remember one time she came in to me on one of the days and she said, How are you doing, Miha? And she was crying. Mm. And she was crying, but she was happy at the same time. And I just sharply looked at her and I said, obviously I'm doing better than you are. Hmm. I'm not crying. Hmm. And she didn't respond to it. She just, she just continued in her joy. So then maybe the second or the third day, um, there was a day, a time called Palancas and Palancas I found out were letters, little letters of love. And they, uh, people that were putting on the retreat, they had all sat down and they had written every one of us that was in the retreat. And mind you, they didn't know all of us, hmm. um, but they probably knew at least one person because they were a sponsor for that person that was there. So like my mom was my sponsor. Okay. So I knew her and then I knew some of her friends that were there, but I didn't know everybody. Mm -hmm. And so there was this one morning that they came in and they said, oh, we don't want you guys to get up. We have something for you because it came in clapping with the music. And they would wake us up every morning like that. And so this one morning they came in and they had these great big brown paper bags. And on the outside of the brown paper bags, they had been all colored with like crayons with pictures and, and flowers and sayings like love and peace and bloom where you're planted. And they would have all these sayings on the brown paper bags mm -hmm. and big grocery bags. And they wouldn't have just one. They'd have like two or three bags for each person. Hmm. And inside each bag were all these little letters, maybe five by five on cards, pieces of paper. Um, there might be like a religious card with a prayer on it and somebody's signature written on the back that said, I love you and I'm praying for you, hmm. Mary. And you don't know who Mary is. And then there is others, um, other people like even granny would, you know, wrote me a note and said, you know, Miha, I love you. And follow God, follow your heart, things like that. And mm. there'd be pictures of me in the, in the bag of Palancas of my childhood, when I was little, when I was at uh, high school, when I was wherever. And <clears throat> it was to show you how much you were loved mm. and how much these people were there praying for you to find the love of God. And it was just a turning moment for me to make me realize that there was people out there that, that love us 
and that God loved us too. And I didn't know that, and I was coming to find that out. So anyway, I got further and further into the retreat, and I, and I found God. I gave mm. God my life at that point. And when I came out of that retreat at the end of the evening, it was Sunday, and they said it was like 5 o'clock, and they told everybody, you know, the retreat's over, and it's time to go home now. Mm. They gave us Bibles, and they, they told us, you know, stay in contact with the people that you've met here that you've, you know, learned to love and, and continue your journey with God now. And they'd warned us that we would have to be strong because we're going back out into the world mm -hmm. that we came in from. And we're not the same as when we came in as we're going out. And it was very true. When I went out, my car was parked there. Mm -hmm. I had a 1976 Celica, brand new. I was all about buying brand new cars. I can't tell you how many brand new cars I've had. but uh, No, I know that from just growing up. <laughs> Seen all the cars. Yeah. So it was a Burgundy uh, Toyota Celica, 1976, brand new. Mm -hmm. And, well, not brand new because it was 1980 then, but I had bought it brand new. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had that license plate frame around it, right? And I even had a keychain that said the same thing on my keys. Oh, wow. And when I walked out to my car and I opened it up, it reeked of smoke. Hmm. And I thought I was going to throw up. I was so disgusted because I knew that the old self mm. was in that car. I knew it. And I pulled out my ashtray and I literally threw it away. And I took the car license plate frame and I threw it in the trash. And I took my key ring and everything else that I had from my past and I threw it in the trash. Mm. And I got in my car and I drove home. And from that day forward, I didn't know it then, but I know it now, is that God had blessed me with a grace. And I never understood what grace is. But grace comes from mercy and forgiveness. And it's something that God doesn't have to give us. But grace is what sustains us and gives us strength, especially in places where we're weak or where we need change. I never smoked another cigarette again. I never had the desire to smoke. I never thought about it. And I never took another drink again. Hmm. And I never, I didn't have the desire. I didn't have the craving. None of that. It was all gone. It was like a switch of a light. It's kind of like a detox in a way. I mean, you know what some people could call it. I know it's more powerful yeah. for you, but I, I think some people could call it like a, a really strong detox. That's very possibly, but I can't even say that I went through <clears throat> yeah. the detox. Like with the withdrawal. In, in yeah, those yeah. four days I didn't. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and the other grace <clears throat> that came was, you know, I told you I had about 10 friends. Mm -hmm. And what one of us didn't think of, the other did. Mm -hmm. And do you know that from that day forward, even to this day, I have never seen any one of those persons uh -huh. ever again. And they knew where I lived. They knew my phone number. Mm. And I never saw them again. And I know now that that was a grace that God gave me. And God continues to give me that grace every day because 
I don't smoke. I don't have the desire to. Mm. Oh, I'll drink a beer here like maybe once a year. Yeah, I but, mean, that's normal. Yeah. That's not threatening. I don't seek it out. Yeah. I don't. And God continues to give me that grace every day that keeps me strong and moving forward. And he doesn't have to, but he does. And he does. He has it for all of us, for every one of us. Mm. But so after I gave my life to God and my life certainly, certainly turned around and I got healthier and I enjoyed life. I enjoyed my relationship with my parents and I loved them and they loved me. And we were able to freely say it to each other. Mm. We learned how to say it to each other, which was magnificent. And in 1981, when I was 23, I met the man that I would marry. And yeah, after I gave my life to God, I really thought and contemplated being a nun. I thought that that was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to do something for God. And I thought that that would be something to do. Mm-hmm. And I even asked around and I, there was a friend that I had at church that I knew through acquaintances and she was in the process of being a nun. And some people that I spoke to said, Oh, why do you want to do that? And I really couldn't answer, but I just felt that I wanted to. But as I said, um, later on in July 31st, 1981, I met the man that I would marry and he was very different and he wasn't what I was used to and I found that he was if you will like a higher station in life and that attracted me that he was a little bit more upper class higher class better class than I was and oh, okay I get what you mean and so uh <clears throat> We dated for six months, and then we got married in January 9 of 1981. And then about six months after we were married, everything started to fall apart. Mm. And it became very hard. And I didn't understand what was going on. And he seemed to come from such a perfect family a perfect mom and dad. And I couldn't understand why our marriage was falling apart. I expected our marriage to be like theirs. Hmm. And I remember that after those six months, he had asked me for a divorce. And I just couldn't understand it. I was so in love. And I didn't understand what God was allowing this to happen. And so I moved out of our home that we had bought, and I moved back home. And I was there maybe about a week. And I remember crying and just praying and begging to God to help me to save my marriage. And I remember being in the living room at my mom and dad's house, I was all by myself. I was the only one there. It was daytime. And I was so heartbroken. Just wretched. Just crying. And I remember I heard this audible, audible voice. 
just like you and I are talking right now. Mm -hmm. And it was a masculine voice, a man's voice. But it, it just said, he's here. And I sat up and the doorbell rang. Mm. And I went to the doorbell, to the door. And when I opened the door, he was standing there. And what he said was, I don't know why I'm here. I was going to a party, but I drove here instead. And so we started life again. And then Nicholas was born the following year. Mm. And life was, <clears throat> life was, seemed like it was back together again. But there was still something missing. Mm. And it was beginning to get chaotic again. And the divide between us grew. And his job that he had, his assignments, seemed to keep him away from home longer because he traveled for his work. And the times that he was gone seemed longer. You know, <clears throat> one, two, three months at a time he'd be gone. And it just seemed like there was no hope. And I began to grow angry with God because I felt, you know what? I had given my life to him, to God. Mm -hmm. I had asked him to save my marriage and it seemed like he did. And he saved my family, you know, like my son and myself and my marriage, a family when I had begged him to. And I didn't understand why was I struggling so much. My life should be easy. Mm -hmm. I gave my life to him. That was, <clears throat> that was the deal. Why wasn't it going that way? But I know now that's just how childish I was. I thought that if I had agreed to give my life to God, that he should take care of everything. And that I should have no heartaches, right? <laughs> I was, um, just to stop for a second, as I think that's what everyone struggles with. Um, even for the people who say they don't really believe in God, but they kind of do. Because um, I know I think about that on a daily basis. Is like, you know, why do bad things happen? Why did this happen to me? Because I've done everything you've asked. So I think everybody can right. probably relate to that. You're right. <clears throat> And that's, I don't think we'll ever get it right 100% with mm -hmm. God. And that's not a negative. That's because he always wants us to keep growing. He always wants us to keep striving. Yeah. You know, to get out there. Yeah. Reach out there. Don't settle for mediocrity. Cast out into the ocean and get better yeah. as, time, as you move on in life. So... But, yeah, like I said, you know, when we follow God, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, 
he didn't say, right, that the life was going to be a bed of roses, and I expected it to be. <laughs> I didn't know any different. I didn't understand with each trial that it was a growing period for me. It was for my benefit, mm -hmm. for me to grow and get stronger. And he, he would give me rest. He would give me times when things were good and things were happy and things seemed to be peaceful and full of love, and then another trial would come. But... I know now that it was a time that was time for me to grow and not to whine and complain as mm. I know I did. God wanted me to trust him and he wanted me to have a lifetime attitude towards him and obeying him so that my life would be right. It would be where I needed to be with whatever he decided he wanted me to do. Because I learned then that, you know, God is the author of my life. He's the author of all of our lives. And when he created the world, when he was creating the penguins and the whales and the ocean and the air and the flowers and the trees and all that, and he started to create man, hmm. he already had me in mind. He already knew who I was going to be and when I would be born. So he loved me even before he knew who I was. And he has a plan for me. And because I have a free will, we all do, he allows me to go my way. But I've always seen in my life that I'm kind of, and it's as good. This is not a negative, but I'm like in a bowling alley. Okay. With bumpers. Mm. Okay. And I'm the ball. <laughs> this is a bad scenario. No, I, I think I know where you're going, but continue. And as I go down the lane, if I veer to the left, I hit the bumper. Mm -hmm. And that's as far as God's going to let me go. Yeah. And then I get back in line. Mm -hmm. And when I do things right, I can strike. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> a good analogy. I get pick it. pick up a spare. Mm -hmm. But it's all good. But God is my bumper. Mm -hmm. And he never lets me go too far, as you can see. I almost killed myself when mm -hmm. he saved me. And I, you know... He did everything. He got to a point where he finally said, all right, that's enough. Mm. Enough is enough. Now you're going to do what I need you to do. And that's where he began to, to change my life and make it so that I could go forward. So for 10 years, though, I fought what God wanted me to do. I fought that trust that he wanted me to have in him. And finally... My life turned a corner after about 10 years of me just battling with him and not wanting to do what he wanted me to do because I wanted what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted my marriage. I wanted my family. I wanted everything perfect. And I was angry with him. And then my life turned a corner. And my youngest son was born. Hey, that's me, guys. Just to let you know. Dustin was born. <clears throat> And then life was good again, and it was good, and I was happy, my marriage was good, I was happy with my children, my life, everything seemed to fall into place again, and it was for a good, for a couple, for a good run for several years, and then again as time went on, we began to grow apart again, and my husband then was now working for a construction company 
and he worked very long hours. And although he came home every night, <clears throat> he came home very late, and he left very early in the morning for work each day. And we just grew apart. And even between that time, even after Dustin was born and I had Nicholas too, um, we even separated once or twice in between those the next 10 years. And then finally, we came to the point where we had just, we, there was nothing left. And um, he walked away, never to come back. And my whole world crashed. My son's lives crashed. Our whole family just was blown apart, was blown into a million pieces. And I know we all had our own emotional stress to handle. And I emotionally disappeared for years. And I know it was hard on Dustin, and it was hard on Nicholas, and it was hard on me. And I just literally emotionally disappeared. And... Almost everything I did after that was mechanical because I knew I had to do it. <clears throat> and I was seeking God and I was trying to understand, but it just seemed so quiet from him. And all I could do was just keep moving forward. And I knew God was there, but I didn't hear him. I couldn't find him. And all I could do, as I said, was just keep moving forward. And I sold our home just ahead of a foreclosure. We filed bankruptcy and I sold my car that I loved so very much. My sweet little oh, the bug. <laughs> convertible, convertible Volkswagen. Bug. Yeah, I remember. And <clears throat> I lost everything that was material. But <clears throat> that's what it was. It was material. It had no real value. And basically... I packed up and we moved to an apartment and we left our life behind and we had to forge a new one. And I remember on the first <sighs> night when we were in our first apartment, I remember that I cried all night long. I felt so lost and I felt as if no one knew where I was at. I felt all alone again. And I just remember I curled up on the big ottoman that I had. And I just laid there and slept. Oh, the green one? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And I just cried myself oh. to sleep. And I remember when I woke up in the morning... I didn't feel any sorrow. And I felt a, a loving presence around me again. And in my heart, I knew that God knew where I was. He said, I know where you're at. There's nothing to be afraid of because I'm here with you and I know where you're at. And that gave me such great peace and it helped me and it gave me strength to keep moving forward. Although I still emotionally was checked out 
And I remember one time that I saw myself in a box, a cardboard box, a big cardboard box. <laughs> and I felt like this box was protecting me. And there was this little window that was in the box. And I was crouching down and I was looking out the window of the box. And I saw people coming and going, walking back and forth, men and women, children, just going about their day. And God said to me, of course, this is in my heart, mm. but he said to me, <clears throat> you need to stop thinking about yourself. You need to realize that there are other people out there in the world that have problems bigger than yours. Hmm. And you need to go out there and you need to find someone to help. And when you help somebody else, you'll see how small your problems really are. Hmm. And so I did. I went out and I joined a prison ministry. And for eight years, I was a part of the prison ministry until the pandemic started, mm -hmm. until the year before the pandemic. And he was right. There were people out there that were hurting so much more than me. These were women that were in prison, that were separated mm -hmm. from their children. Some of them separated from their husband, but most of them mourned the loss of their children that they were separated from. And some of them were repeat offenders. Some of them knew God, some of them didn't. Some of them were very, very close to getting out and so desperately didn't want to come back again. And some of them didn't know how to keep from not coming back again to prison. And he was right. There were people out there that had far more to deal with in life than I had. And it made me so grateful for where I was at in life and grateful that I was able to help them. Even to just sit with them and listen and pray with them and share with them and just show them that there is something better out there for them. They just had to believe, believe it. Mm -hmm and forgive themselves. Yeah. And a lot of them were very positive and grateful that they had, I think the ones that were grateful that had learned from their prison sentence, I think those hopefully would be the ones that would not return because they acknowledged it and they grew while they were there. And I think that would give them great strength to stay out. So I enjoyed that part of prison ministry. And I also worked with juveniles from the ages of 13 to 18. And I did that for about five years. Until the juvenile hall I was assigned to with the Riverside Sheriff's Department closed. And those 
those young men were amazing. And one of the biggest things that they were lacking in their life was love. Mm. You know, love is actually everything. That's what we strive for. We all want to be loved. Mm-hmm. It's like and being accepted. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, in our church there in <clears throat> Beaumont, above the cross, it says God is love. And it's true. The greatest of everything that he gives us, of all these things, the greatest is love. And these kids in Juno Hall, that's all they really wanted was love. And they didn't understand love, and they didn't know how to get love, but it, they wanted it. And I remember this one uh, young kid that was in my group. <clears throat> Every month, um, we would do our our, min- our ministers. We would all get together, and we decided that we would hold a birthday party for the, each month. Mm. And whose ever birthdays it was, we would do it on the first of the month or that first. Um, we go on Sunday, so the, whatever first Sunday we did for that month, and we would say, whoever was born in March, we're going to have a birthday party on this day, and, and we're going to celebrate your birthdays. And I remember the one young kid, it was going to be his birthday that month, that month, and he said, what do you do for a birthday? Hmm. He says, I've never had a birthday party before. What is it? What do you guys do? And I explained it to him, you know, that it's a time that we celebrate the day you were born, and I said, it's it's a happy, festive time. <clears throat> and it's something to just celebrate because it's a gift of life. And so I would make sure that I would ask whoever's birthday it was that month, you know, what do you want for your birthday? And the sheriff's department there was so lenient. They allowed us to bring in all kinds of stuff mm. food-wise. Yeah. And um, we always brought in soda. We would find out what soda do you want? What juice do you want? What chips do you want? Is there a, a cookie or a, a some kind of a dessert that you like that you haven't had for a long time? And we would bring all of that in, and we would just celebrate and have a party for them. And it was a it was an eye opener for them because it showed them that someone cared about them, and it it gave them a form of love. And so that was always a, a great experience. I I liked the prison ministry and I learned a lot, and I. I gained a lot perspective from the people that I met. So God still had plans for me, though. He needed me still to continue to trust him, and he still continues to ask me to trust him, even now today. And during the next two years after I was in my apartment, um, I went through a time where I lost not one, not two, <laughs> not three, yeah. but four jobs. And I was the sole, sole supporter. I paid the rent, you know, and I, I had sold my Volkswagen and I bought a car with that money that I didn't have a car payment and it was a good <clears throat> car. So I had to always make sure I had an income to provide for us. And I'm like, how can I do that if I keep losing my job? And I'm just not the kind of person that loses a job. I had never experienced that before. But my first job after 11 years, they decided that they were going to move from the city of Paris out to Los Angeles. Yeah. And they said, your job is there. And I tried it for 30 days, and I just couldn't do that commute. It was horrendous. And so I had to, I had to quit my job. And 
I did unemployment for a little while, but I knew that wasn't going to last forever. And so then I, my next job, I went to work for a water bottling company and it was a temporary position. And, uh, hey, you worked nights. Yeah, I worked, I worked, uh, I started at two thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that was a terrible job. Such <laughs> physical labor. And I was not used to working around, uh, around that time. really. Yeah. I yeah. just, I'm just not a night person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember it. So I, I worked there, but I was temporary and I, uh, worked in the logistics office and, uh, they let me go after 10 months. So there I was again, no job, a little bit of unemployment. And uh, so then I struck out again because uh, I had a friend of mine that um, when I worked for the trash company, I had been um, a dispatcher also. Mm-hmm. And his girlfriend worked for a local company and she needed a dispatcher. So he said, hey, I know somebody you should talk to because she'd be a good dispatcher for you. And so he called me and he gave me her phone number and said, give her a call. So I called her and um, she hired me. And I took about 30 days for me to actually get on get on the job, but she hired me. And that turned into a, a beautiful relationship, her and I. We became really, really good friends. And um, I worked there for, I think, about a year. And then um, the owner where we were working, uh, his mentality kind of changed and he decided that he didn't want her and I working there. Hmm. I don't, I don't know what the reasons were. And so she had worked there eight years and I had been there only one year, but he let us both go. Oh, dang. He let us both go. And I don't know if he felt that we were too close of friends and that we would conspire against him. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely wouldn't have done that, but yeah. so he let us both go. And so now I'm without another job again. And so I had to just do what I had to do, you know, and keep looking for a job, keep applying here and there. And I remember one time I had gone to church. I had gone to mass in the morning. And uh, the the priest that was there during the mass, he would allow us to speak out loud about intentions that we had. And I remember a couple of times, um, and I was going every day to Mass because I wasn't working, that I remember I had said that I was looking for a new job. And uh, at the end of Mass, this little lady that I didn't know, but I had seen her in church every day, very sweet little lady, she come up to me and she said, Honey, she said, don't be afraid to take a job offer that's different than what you've ever done before. Hmm. She said, you'll be able to learn new things. And she said, you'll be able to do the job. <clears throat> Don't be afraid to, t- to accept it. And I'm like, okay. And it was like a couple of days later, I got a phone call for an interview for a banking job. Banking. Hmm. I'm like, gulp, banking? Okay, I'm not a numbers person. <clears throat> I can't see myself... Uh, correctly, num- uh, <laughs> you know, uh, counting out a couple of hundred dollars or something when someone's going to do a deposit or whatever. Yeah. And when I'm under pressure, if someone says <clears throat> two plus two is five, I'm going to say, yeah, you're right. Because I have to really take my time with numbers. Mm. Um, but I found, okay, all right. So I um, 
I went ahead and went for the interview and I was given the job and the blessing of the job was that it I had to be I would be trained for eight weeks and mm -hmm. during that training uh, my employer my new employer would pay me so now I was working a new job again and I was getting paid and then once my training was over I was given a position where I would work 36 hours a week and the pay was considerably low and I was like oh my god I don't think that's going to help me with my with my um with my finances that I needed but there was also they told me my employer told me that there was a lot of overtime mm -hmm. and that I could sign up for overtime every you know every week so I did so I worked 12 hours a day 6 hours a week 6 days a week 12 hours a day. Did you work on the weekends? Uh -huh. you I worked did, on huh? Saturdays. You're right. And that's how I was able yeah. to make up the income <clears throat> that I needed because the, the wage was lower. Mm -hmm. And then um, I was working for the an employment agency. So although they might have gotten top dollar for me, they paid me some of it and then some of it they kept in their pocket. Yeah, you guys split it. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah. So my wage was smaller. Yeah. So I had to make up for that by working more time. So for a year, I worked 12 hours, six days a week. And then there was a position uh, with my employer <clears throat> that if I could qualify for it, then I would be a full-time employee with my employer and mm -hmm. I wouldn't be with the agency anymore. So You get top dollar at that point. Yes. So fortunately, because I had previous bankruptcy <clears throat> experience, uh, that was a bankruptcy department that they needed help in, I got hired on as a permanent employee. And to this day... That is where I am still employed, gainfully employed, and I'm very happy being there. It's a blessing. It's a good job, a very good job. And um, God really had taken care of me. But you see, I had to trust him. I mean, golly, losing four jobs. Yeah, I remember it. And you know, you think, I wasn't any help, but I remember it. <laughs> <clears throat> but you know, you think about it and people say, well, geez, it's hard lose just to lose one job. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I even thought, you know, I was over 50. I was, I don't know, I was 52, three, something like that. I don't know. And you know, in your head, you're thinking, oh God, I keep getting older. The older you get, the less people want to hire you. No, I remember. You used to tell me that you couldn't learn anymore. <laughs> I used to tell you, no, you can do it. I remember. Yeah, I was so sure I couldn't learn anymore. No, no. I couldn't do it. But yes, <clears throat> Dustin was always there going, Mom, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. You, yeah. Yeah, you got this. I know you can do this. But... That was about all the help I could do. <laughs> Other than that, I was on my own crazy path. <laughs> but we got through it. We I did. Know. We got through it. And God was working on you too, and you didn't know it. You know what? Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, God can dribble how many basketballs? <laughs> he could do them all. Yeah. But, <clears throat> yeah. So we were still in an apartment. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling back and forth working. And I remember I was dreaming and asking God from time to time. Because living in an apartment was not something that I was crazy about. I was used to having a house. my house, my own space. And I just kept dreaming and asking God that someday I could get a new house. I didn't even mean a brand new house. I just meant a new house, a new house that was new to me. Mm -hmm. 
I did have a few particulars. I did ask, <laughs> oh, if it could be three bedroom, two baths, so that... Like have a baller house? Yeah, I get you. <laughs> so that that way, you know, I could have family and friends come over, you know, mm-hmm. something that's not too small. Mm. But it didn't have to be a brand new house. <laughs> and there came a point when I decided that the rent had gone up in our apartment, and I thought, okay, i got to start looking for a new place to rent. Yeah. And Dustin was kind of anxious and ready to move out on his own, too, so... I said, okay, so he got himself secured, found himself a place to live, and I found a place to live, and I was leasing a two-bedroom, three-bedroom, two-bath house. It was very nice. It was affordable. And then uh, one day I got a notice in the mail from the owner where I was living and said, hey, we have sold the park where you live at, and uh, the house that you're living in, Mm-mm. We didn't sell it to the new owners who bought the park. They bought all the other houses in the park except for yours. And the new owners uh, want you to move out. They're going to evict you from your home. And they said, however, we don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, we want you to make us an offer to buy the house that you're in. And then everything will be okay. And I thought, oh my gosh, how could I afford to buy this house that I was in? And I talked to the current owner and she said, uh, well, she said, you know, years ago, because uh, the house I was in was only two years old. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, a couple of years ago when they first moved that house in, they tried to sell it and they listed it for $80,000. I was like, oh my God, $80,000. And so she said, you know, they've had it a couple of years and they weren't able to sell it. That's why they decided to lease it. And that's why you were able to lease it. She said, make them an offer. She said, make them a a low offer and just see. And I talked to the manager for the owner of the house and she said, you know, let's crunch some numbers. She said, we don't want to have to move that house out of the park because that'll cost us money and we don't want to displace you. She said, make us an offer. Mm Mm-hmm. And I talked to the manager again, and she said, oh, well, that's good. They want you to make them an offer. She said, offer them $40,000. <clears> I was like, oh, my God. That's yeah, that's so, way low, that's so low. compared to serious? 80. Yeah. She said, yeah, offer it to them. <clears throat> I said, okay. So I uh, called the lady back, and I told her, okay, I crunched some numbers. I said, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I don't, you know, I don't have savings, and so this is what I can do. And she says, well, what's your, no, what's your offer? Tell me. And I told her, I said, I can offer you $40,000. And she said, okay, all right, well, let's see. All right. She said, let me crunch some numbers and uh, we'll get back to you. Hmm. Okay. Very next day, she calls me back and she says, okay, we like your offer. And she says, I'll tell you what, if you can give us $5,000 down, Hmm. We'll finance forty thousand, so that made the price of the house forty five thousand. And she says, "We'll, we'll, uh, the owner is willing to finance the forty thousand mm-hmm. uh, for five years." Oh. She said, "We don't need a credit check. We don't need nothing." She said, "If you can do the five thousand dollars down, then we'll just finance it for five years for you." And uh, so I had a little money, and <laughs> God bless my oldest son Nicholas. <clears throat> He helped me with the rest of the money for the down payment, and I presented it to him, and I became the new owner. 
of a three-bedroom house. Of a three-bedroom, two-bath house, and it's new. And uh, next year, uh, let's see, in April, I start my fifth year. Oh, yeah, you'll pay it off next year. Yeah. So I'll pay it off next year, and uh, I think it's in Mm -hmm. June of 2023 is when I'll pay it off. Mm -hmm. I'll have it all paid off, and there's my house. (laughs) There's my house, and... You know, all I can say is that, you know, I I had to keep trusting God. And it wasn't a bed of roses. It wasn't, uh, I was used to four-wheel driving all my life, and that was pretty much what I did, is I four-wheel drive through my life up to this point without a car, without Mm -hmm. a four-wheel drive. But I learned every step of the way, and God never abandoned me, and he was always there. He just always kept saying, you have to trust me because I'll do what's right for you. And you won't lose out. You won't miss out on anything. And everything that I give you will be perfect for you. And it has been. Everything that he has given me has been perfect. And I haven't missed out on anything. And he has blessed me with so much. I have a most beautiful, magnificent family. Friends, co-workers. I have, you know, my sons, my grandsons. I have a magnificent, beautiful-hearted grand-daughter-in-law. Uh, I have two beautiful nieces that have always been in my life. Actually, four. Yeah. Corey has been with me, like, all my life since I was 14. Mm-hmm. She's always been with me. And Elizabeth. And Jamie and Stephanie. And even my father-in-law, Grandpa Jim. Mm. They've been in my life forever. And he's always blessed. Jesus has always blessed me. He's always made sure that I was surrounded by love. I never lacked for love. Because I had all these beautiful people in my life. And for a moment, for a time, a very short time, Satan tried to convince me that I was not lovable Mm. when my husband left. He tried very hard to convince me. Because I know he knows that that's one of the things that that I needed to stand on. Hmm. but God's love is sufficient for me and he continues to surround me with people that love me and that I can love and I think in the end I'm still an infant in his eyes and I still have much to do and much to grow and much more trusting to do And every day I have to agree to trust him and lay my life in his hands and believe and know that everything will be for my good. And along the way, I have the most beautiful things happen. Like when I get to sit with my grandson and just rock him to sleep. Mm -hmm. 
He's an angel. And God lives in him, just like he lives in all of us. And Logan, he was my angel when things were the hardest. And he always brings me joy and happiness. As you guys did when you were children growing up. Mm. And as Corey did as a little girl. She gave me so much love. But I had none around me. She was always with me. She was my little right hand. <laughs> she was always with me as a little kid. And then Jamie and Stephanie, too. So I mm. think that's the conclusion of my story. I'm sorry I cried a lot, but... Before uh, before we end it, though, um, I, I'm just uh, thinking about the other listeners, you know, because we have to be able to look at this from, you know, someone else's shoes, right? Absolutely. So... Um, for someone who doesn't believe in God, right? Because there are people out there that don't. For those people, what would you say to them that they need to surround themselves with if they don't surround themselves with God? What's what's another option? If you can put yourself in their shoes and you don't believe in God and religion, what would be something you would tell them? Surround yourself with people who do believe in God because it's contagious. Mm. It's more contagious than COVID. <laughs> and God will not give up on anyone. And God created all of us. And he believes in all of us. And there isn't one sheep, one person, one human being that he will he will not continue to look for, to strive for. Because he created you. No matter what you do not know. Okay. Well, uh, thanks guys for joining today's episode. It was uh, a little bit different, more emotional, but I hope you enjoyed it. And hopefully, um, you yourself can maybe take inspiration from her story, or you know someone who's maybe gone through uh, a rough life or something uh, similar. Um, we'll see you next time. Remember that uh, life is an adventure. So. Make sure you're living on your own terms. See you next time. You've been listening to Your Adventure Podcast with Dustin Emery. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this podcast. And we hope that you've been truly inspired and motivated. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on Instagram at Your Adventure Podcast. Until next time, this is Your Adventure Podcast signing off.